a most original and creative talent in our business. Would you welcome Mr. Orson Welles? Ladies and gentlemen, Orson Welles again, come to call for another visit. Good evening. This is Orson Welles. Well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. I'm joined with, uh, for the first time, with our friend uh, Rob, uh, OTR Rob, you guys know him as, in, on my podcast. Hi! <laughs> we have Terry Phillips, we have Catherine Fuller Seeley, and we're talking Orson Welles today. This is the one where it's just audio, so I... My yeah, yeah, you, you feel free to wave, but of course they're not going to see it. But <laughs> and I can continue wearing my lighting glasses, and I don't have to explain them. Anyway, <laughs> the, uh, the, well, what, today's Orson is again uh, we're uh, totally wild. We we um, he goes all over the map and everything. And uh, I just thought we'd go around and and chat about anything that kind of struck us from this. Um, Orson piece. For me, it was neat uh, hearing the, um, oh, what is it? The, the letter the girl writes, what's her name again? Virginia. Virginia, yeah. Yes, Virginia, there's a Santa Claus. And it was neat hearing it from Orson, uh, reading about it and talking about it and things. So that, that was, that piece was resonant with me. I like that. Um, the Kathy, what uh, stood out for you this, this week? Um, well, um, I, he just as you had said before we started recording, he packed so much into this uh, episode. I was really struck by his discussion at the end of the um, people in Massachusetts uh, pushing back against HUAC, what she called the Un-American Committee, and it just it struck a chord about some current political things. Want to to yell about what is un-American and to want to condemn it. Um, one, one, uh, he, he comes out very much against the dyes committee of, uh, the world war two era and, and says that from a very conservative position, if they say all that their all of their opponents are the extreme or communists, mm -hmm. um, uh, mm -hmm. that, and yet the dyes committee did not, um, Orison says, uh, investigate or complain about extreme rightist uh, fascist right. Right. and um it just it reminds me of sadly of some um discussion in the news today of saying that all we all the political discussion are just calling names and condemning other people lack of discussion of ideas it's just yeah. sort of throwing bombs at each other and uh, i thought orson was prescient because i mean sort of huac would just he was hoping it would go away, and in the years just following this, it would grow to, yeah. to hideous yeah. large proportions. So, um, it in the way that all of our discussions of these episodes of these or talks by Orson Welles, it's fascinating. Um, here in the um, late at the year end of the year 1945, and they said, uh, well, one in the history books, we keep thinking the war is over. Everybody's gone to Disney World. Um, uh, we're just celebrating and happy. And I, I love these uh, broadcasts to remind us what an incredibly um, tense 
controversial, uh, you know, upset, scary time. It was so many life and death issues being tossed around every time he talks about World War Three or we're living in the atomic age. Right. Um, I'm, right. I'm, I'm blown away. And, and yet the solace I find is while I'm very concerned about what's going on today and everything in the news also seems like, you know, the world's on fire and things like this. We, go, we got past the end of 1945. Mm-hmm. And that only just gives me hope that we'll get yes. past some of the most worrisome things in the news today. Exactly. I exactly. agree. Yeah. All of that. I would agree with all of that. And, and yeah, these listening to these makes me see sometimes we get so into thinking our times, these must be the most tumultuous times in the history of our country. It's never gone in through anything like this. How are we going to make it through this? And then you listen to Orson and you're going, okay, if I was sitting in Orson's shoes, I would be thinking the same thing back then. And it's like, okay, we made it through another 75 years since then. So Hopefully we're going to make it through another 75 years after, after this time. We shall see. Um, Rob, were you struck by um, anything special in this episode? Or Yeah, um, the uh, letter to Virginia and his reading of it. Yeah. I, I would think that today, if Orson Welles were alive today, he'd be killing it on audio books. <laughs> yes, he would. He would. Uh. What a great he would be, he would, there would probably be the most requested book, you know, if, if Orson were narrating that book or whatever book it would happen to be. I mean, uh, I, publishers would be clamoring for Orson Welles to yeah. do just that, read their book or their whatever book it is. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And and the House on American Activities the and the Dyes Commission, I hadn't really known what the Dyes Commission was. I know early in 1940, Red Skelton used to make jokes about the Dyes Committee, and I didn't know what it was. And, I, and was the Dyes Committee the same thing as the House on American Activities Committee? Was it the same? Morphed into it. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. Over time, it that's what it would eventually. That's what they evolved into. Yeah, and then really so, gained steam uh, in the late forties, early fifties, and and yeah. And and then and then the parallels of the House and American activities, how that just fits in with what's going on now. Yeah. Yeah, uh, especially with this last lawsuit that Texas brought, right against the other states. Oh, really, I can do that. I okay. mean, and and people on on Twitter were calling all of these senators and participants who signed on to this that they were doing a seditious thing. Yeah, and if you think about it, it's not a stretch, right? that that's exactly what they were doing. Right. Trying to disfranchise people who had already voted and saying your vote doesn't count because the, our guy didn't win. Right, right. Well, that's that's what I always think is, is kind of humorous. I mean, it just depends on which side you look at. I mean, one side is saying, 
well, we got 75 million votes, so we should have won. And we, we, he, he won this thing. And the other side's going, well, yeah, but we have 80 million votes and we did win. So <laughs> it, it all depends on which side you, you're sort of on in this thing. But uh, Terry, what did, what did you think about the, the episode? And Terry, just so we know, Terry just listened to it because I hadn't sent it out to him. So Terry, we get a quick take from Terry about what he got out. Well, I, you know, since it's my job to provide a little context here, historical yes. context, let we me... Love context. <laughs> Let me um, let me start uh, with the the fourth subject that we've all been talking about here, um, the House and American Activities Committee. Trivia question for you: Does so he was calling for its termination in 1945? Does anybody know? By show of hands, I know that our listeners can't see this, but does anybody know when this committee finally was terminated? Maybe. Okay. Uh, 1954. Good yeah, guess. Fifty-three is where I would go with. Good guess. Both wrong. Um, oh, <laughs> well, I, probably the sixties. Horrific. Huh? In nineteen sixty-nine, it was renamed. It was renamed what? the Internal um, Security Committee. Wow! But it wasn't terminated until nineteen seventy-five. Really? 30 years after Orson Welles and, and this, yeah. this uh, group of letter writers called for its uh, disbandment. Right. Um, the, um, but it was essentially defanged once well, the, with the whole uh, McCarthy. Yes, but it still, but it still had the, the power to subpoena and to, right. to um, ruin lives. Yeah. Um, the, the overall theme of this commentary, I believe was faith. If you look at these four topics that he discussed, beginning with fortune telling, mm -hmm. and then talking about the uh, negotiations with uh, the United, between the United States and, and what he called Russia, which was the Soviet Union, and putting an end to, um, to tensions between the two countries, the Yes, Virginia letter to the New York uh, Sun, and then belief in democracy, which was basically what he was advocating by getting rid mm -hmm. of it committee it all had to do with our belief in things we couldn't see and the irony is that he started by talking about these fortune tellers these uh, these shut eyes grifters as he called yes. them who yeah. were taking advantage of people's uh, faith their their faith in those who could um, foresee the future he began by quoting a line from a play prophets don't foretell history as much as they make it and he referred to the Irish play, uh, which was uh, Juno and the Peacock by the great Irish playwright, uh, Sean O'Casey. It was the third, I think, in his trilogy. He also mentioned that he was, uh, on, he was in a, a, a troupe of, of actors with uh, the great Kit Cornell. That was Catherine Cornell, the, the wonderful actress who was at that in her day called the, the First Lady of the Theater. And, and he, he felt bad. He was embarrassed about having learned how to do these fortune telling tricks. Right. I, I have a confession to make. I'm in the middle of writing a play about those who did this kind of thing, trying to oh, wow. debunk fortune tellers. And of course, we know that Harry Houdini did that with, uh, right. with psychics. Right. But I did not know until listening to this commentary that Orson Welles also, who was a great magician, yes. also tried to expose these, uh, these phonies. Yeah. Um, 
the uh, the last thing I wanted to point out was that the uh, the the letter from uh, from Virginia and the response from uh, the New York Sun is famous. I mean, we all know about it, even though it was published in 1897. Wow! But I I find these these two these two sides of the same coin to be interesting and only Orson Welles could pull this off to, to say on, on one hand, you know, we shouldn't be so credulous to believe in fairy tales, to believe right. it, uh, to be, to be gullible. Yes. And at the same time, you got to believe in something. Yeah. Yeah. So why yeah. not believe in Santa Claus? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, I'll tell you what, that will be our end for this discussion of this piece, if that's all right for, with everybody. And we will uh, be back next week with more chat about Orson Welles. So enjoy this week's episode. Excellent episode. Covers a lot of ground. I highly recommend it. I highly recommend every episode of this thing. But anyway, we'll go from there. This is Orson Welles. Come to call again for some more talk and stories about people and the things they're doing all over the world. Also, I've got a confession to make. We'll get to that in just a minute. Among the fine new radios you'll be seeing in the stores, there'll be one whose name may be new to you. But that doesn't mean that it's new to the radio field. Actually, this name has been on the very finest types of radios for more than 15 years. The name is Lear. L-E-A-R. And the radios it's been on since 1930 have been radios for aircraft. This is why you hear people say Lear is the name men fly by. Today, Lear is taking all that unusual experience and skill in manufacturing and applying it to radios that you can buy for your home. And as you would expect, these home radios are as fine, as dependable, as high in quality as Lear knows how to make them. In them, you find radio's newest developments. One is the Lear wire that remembers, a simplified way of making recordings on a wire. Another is a unique way of tuning your set from your easy chair, not just a few pre-selected stations, but any program anywhere on the dial. At your fingertips, you have a miniature panel with a dial and two tiny knobs, one for tuning, the other for volume. And with these, you control your handsome radio set across the room. Well, this is something you've never seen before. And it's something you'll want in your new radio. Something you'll find only in the radios with the nameplate Lear. L-E-A-R. And now Mr. Wells brings you his views and opinions on events as he sees them. The opinions are his own and do not necessarily represent the views of Lear Incorporated. We took a bit of a swat at fortune-telling and fortune-tellers a while back, and the mail on this matter has been voluminous and passionate. A lot of good people who work the Ouija boards or get their tips from the tea leaves have written in to say that I have grossly libeled an ancient and honorable profession. Well, it's ancient, all right. And I'll freely admit that all fortune tellers aren't crooks, not all of them. There are some soothsayers who are perfectly sincere. There's a word for that kind, you know, in the racket. The word is shut-eye. It's an occupational disease in the fortune-telling game, and a surprising lot of the grafters end up their careers by getting to be shut-eyes. A psychic, a pro, becomes a shut-eye when he believes his powers are genuine. Happens all the time. You guess right often enough, you think there must be something to it. You start to swallow your own line of patter. Then you're a shut-eye, and another good man is lost to the profession. I know I'm speaking from experience. I am a shut-eye. Several years ago, when I was touring the country in a play with Kit Cornell, we found ourselves for a whole week 
in the dullest city ever inhabited by the human race. I won't name the city, but you all know the sort of place I mean. Everything closes up when the sun goes down. They show only the movies you've seen twice before, and all the chairs in the hotel lobby are permanently occupied by traveling salesmen. As I say, we couldn't find any fun, so we had to make it for ourselves. My fellow troopers made their whoopee in various ways. They caught up on their reading and letter writing, or they took long walks. I became a fortune teller. You heard me. I went into the racket. I became a swami and had a sign painted saying I was. I rented a room on the other side of the town and put up the sign in the window. I knew the secrets of the past, present, and the future, the sign said. And anybody who didn't think so could come right on in and see for themselves. Well, I've been playing around with magic all my life, so you'll have to take my word for it that I got by. First, I was cautious. I led the suckers on very carefully, and I only gambled on a hunch when I figured I was safe. But by the second day, I got adventurous. Now, please understand, I wasn't taking any money. After each reading, I went into a pitch about how in this special case I didn't feel justified in accepting a fee. I told you I was quite a hit, and that was probably the main cause. I may not have been good, but I was free. By the third day, there were lines of people waiting patiently to see the marvelous professor from the mysterious East, and that's when I got to be a shut-eye. I made wild guesses. I just said anything that came into my mind, and lo and behold, what do you know, I was usually right. Anyway, the poor misguided people who came into my parlor told me I was right. The fact is, most people want to be fooled. When you tell them something, they only hear what's true, and they don't notice what isn't. And by the last afternoon, when I closed up shop and walked to the city's theater for the evening show, I was telling myself I must be an honest-to-goodness Simon Pure Clairvoyant with second sight, hindsight, and foresight, the whole works. Then I thought it over again, I realized... I was kidding myself more than I was kidding anybody else. And then I began to feel ashamed. I had imposed upon the credulity of all those people who had come to see me with their troubles. I began to worry if some of the things I'd told them might in some way affect what they might do about their troubles. I couldn't give back any money because I hadn't taken it. And I couldn't take back the advice I'd given, and that really worried me. It started me to thinking. And here's what I thought. Prophets don't foretell history as much as they make it. No matter how we laugh at the gypsies in the tent, fortune-telling is never merely fun, and it's usually very dangerous. Well, early the next day, I paid the rent for my front parlor, and as far as the fortune-telling racket is concerned, I've gone straight ever since. As far as the fortune-telling racketeers and their victims are concerned, let me say this. No man can read the future. You may cite me documented examples of precognition for proof, but this is no proof. I will duplicate any such demonstration on this radio program. I will foretell a headline in tomorrow's paper or any such test, however impossible it may seem. And I will use trickery to prove that it's all trickery. Any takers? Let me hear from you. Well, since the uh, breakdown of the London Conference, the whole world, as the man in the Irish play says, has been in a state of chassis. This Moscow Conference is crucial. The Kremlin has completely ignored Anglo-American requests for its opinion on international atomic policy. Attempts to write peace treaties for Italy and the Axis satellites have been stymied by the naughty issue of reparations, the withdrawal of Russian and British troops from Iran, which 
We demanded upon Iranian request as at a standstill. We raced madly to meet our self-imposed January 1st deadline, but Russia and Great Britain are stoutly refusing to move. State Department officials now speak of soft industry for Germany. As one reporter put it, they'll only be permitted to make rubber daggers. So things don't look so awfully good for the meeting of the ministers in Moscow, in spite of which this is gloomy Sunday in Washington for those military minds who'd like to get into a war with Russia. The bad omens ought to cheer them up, but they don't like one little bit the idea of Burns, Bevan, and Molotov having another try at getting together on the business of getting together. The champions of World War III are deathly afraid that this conference may breed peace. Well, this is surely the season for the settlement of peace on Earth and the commencement of a little international goodwill, and who knows? We may hear from these latest official conversations the tidings of great joy, which shall be to all men. I see by the paper that some professor fellow in one of our institutions of learning has announced that Santa Claus ought to be abolished. I suggest that we ought to abolish that kind of school teacher. And while we're on the subject of St. Nick, maybe you'd like to hear the famous editorial from the New York Sun. It was first printed in 1897, but it still applies. We take pleasure in answering at once, and thus prominently, the communication below. Dear editor, I am eight years old. Some of my little friends say there is no Santa Claus. Papa says, if you see it in the sun, it's so. Please tell me the truth. Is there a Santa Claus? Signed, Virginia O'Hanlon, 115 West 95th Street. Virginia, your little friends are wrong. They have been affected by the skepticism of a skeptical age. Yes, Virginia. There is a Santa Claus. He exists as certainly as love and generosity and devotion exist. And you know that they abound and give to your life its highest beauty and joy. Alas, how dreary would be the world if there were no Santa Claus. It would be dreary as, as if there were no Virginias. There would be no childlike faith then, no poetry, no romance to make tolerable this existence. We should have no enjoyment except in sense and sight. The eternal light with which childhood fills the world would be extinguished. Not believe in Santa Claus, you might as well not believe in fairies. You might get your papa to hire men to watch in all the chimneys on Christmas Eve to catch Santa Claus, but even if they did not see Santa Claus coming down, what would that prove? Nobody sees Santa Claus. But that is no sign that there is no Santa Claus. The most real things in the world are those that neither children nor men can see. Did you ever see fairies dancing on the lawn? Of course not. But that's no proof that they're not there. Nobody can conceive or imagine all the wonders there are unseen and unseeable in this world. You tear apart the baby's rattle and see what makes the noise inside. But there is a veil covering the unseen world, which not the strongest man or even the united strength of all the strongest men that ever lived could tear apart. Only faith, fancy, poetry, love, romance can push aside that curtain 
and view and picture the supernal beauty and glory beyond. Is it all real? Oh, Virginia, in all this world, there is nothing else real and abiding. No Santa Claus? Thank God he lives, and he lives forever. A thousand years from now, Virginia, nay, ten times ten thousand years from now, he will continue to make glad the heart of childhood. And now your attention, please, for an interesting announcement. Just a moment to give you a further word about the new Lear Home Radios. They are radios such as you've never seen before. Soundly designed, carefully engineered, and manufactured with that respect for the finest, which Lear has developed through 15 years of building aircraft radios. Among these new Lear Home Radios are models from magnificent console combinations with television, wire recorder, FM, and shortwave that sell for about $500 to excellent table models for as little as $19.95. And from the top of the line to the bottom, they all share that superlative workmanship that has built the fine reputation of Lear Incorporated. Of course, the best way for you to see what Lear has done for home radio is to see the new sets themselves. We expect you'll be able to do that soon. We'll keep you posted. Because we know that when you look at and listen to a Lear radio, you'll be convinced that here is a radio that gives you the best value for every dollar you pay. Remember the name, Lear. L-E-A-R. And now, a final word from Orson Welles. Not long ago, President Truman said that we do not intend to interfere with internal affairs of other countries. It looks like the Navy Department hasn't been briefed on this policy. Long after the war ended, the Dutch requested war materials from FEA. This was refused on the basis that the Dutch were no longer eligible because the war was over. In spite of which, an excellent Washington source assures me that the Navy sent gasoline, food rations, and other materials of war which were used by the Dutch in fighting their colonial subjects. Isn't the Navy informed about our foreign policy, or could it be that some high naval official just doesn't agree with President Truman and is taking this current war into his own hands. Well, almost 100 Massachusetts civic leaders are demanding immediate dissolution of the House Committee on Un-American Activities, often called the Un-American Committee, they say. I quote, It took time to expose the true nature of the Dyes Committee. No further time is required to expose the Committee on Un-American Activities whose personnel and tactics indicate fidelity to the Dyes tradition, which is the fascist tradition. It attacks progressive action on the ground that it is communistic. It divides the progressive forces. It intimidates liberals, particularly those in government service. It is a menace to civil liberty. It gives no promise of investigating the dangerously subversive American fascist movements. It uses the term communism as a name-calling technique directed against progressive movements in an effort to deceive the American people and bring reaction draped in the American flag. This technique, operated by Hitler on an international scale, nearly cost us our civilization. Used inside many nations, it laid the groundwork for his later conquests. We know the method now and the failure of the House of Representatives to dissolve this committee will bring discredit on its own head." Unquote. The signers are prominent educational, civil liberties, and religious leaders. Now my time's up. Thanks for letting me come to call. Join me next time. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. It's 10.30 at KECA, Los Angeles. Transcribe.
gifts for Christmas? The May Company, of course. Now stay tuned. 